Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coastal Crimes, the podcast about the dark side of your favorite tropical vacation spots. I'm Jen, your host, and this week's topic is not exactly at a tropical location, but it is a vacation destination. I am talking about Georgia, guys. Now, I know Georgia isn't like your first go-to for vacation spots, but this story that I have is, I think, extremely interesting, and I wanted to talk about it today. So forgive me, it's not tropical, but it's definitely still interesting. So I am talking about the all-day murders. This took place in Donaldsonville, Georgia, which is a very small town in Seminole County, back in 1973, where six members of the all-day family were brutally murdered. But before we get into that, how about some fun facts about Georgia, guys? So, Georgia was founded in 1732 by British Member of Parliament James Oglethorpe as a felony as a felon colony. Now, the only reason I think this is interesting is because I think Oglethorpe is fun to say, um, but Oglethorpe wanted to use the colony as a place for prisoners who could not pay their debts. The social reformer believed that many debtors were released back into cities without any form of support. He wanted to take these people and give them a second chance in a new place. There is a tree in Athens, Georgia that owns itself and an eight-foot radius of land. Professor William Jackson deeded the tree and the land to the tree in the early 19th century. Since then, that tree blew down in the 1940s and was replaced with a new tree from the original's acorn. And as you all know, Georgia is known as the peach state, but it's also the country's top producer of pecans, peanuts, and Vidalia onions. The state's onions are considered some of the sweetest in the world. And speaking of peanuts, Ashburn, Georgia is home to the world's largest fake one. The giant peanut sits on top of a yellow crown. Stretching over two acres, the world's largest drive-in restaurant can be found in Atlanta. The Varsity is what it's called, and it can fit 600 vehicles. Approximately 4,000 people came to Tallapoosa, Georgia every year to see a taxidermy possum dropped on New Year's Eve. Each year since the early 2000s, a stuffed possum named Spencer has been lowered from one of the city's oldest buildings in a Christmas lights covered ball at midnight. The annual possum drop, as it's called, is rounded out with fireworks, live music, and the crowning of a possum king and queen, who of course are human. Georgia actually has a state possum, and his name is Pogo. You can watch his antics in an animated cartoon on YouTube if you really want to go check it out. And Atlanta is known as the birthplace of the civil rights movement. You can find Martin Luther King Jr.'s house on Auburn Avenue. There are over 55 streets in Atlanta with the name Peachtree. Some historians believe that the streets are a reference to the Native American village Standing Peachtree, a Creek Indian settlement near Atlanta, and no, not the fruit. In Georgia, funeral directors can lose their licenses if they use obscene language in the company of a corpse. And General Sherman of the Union Army burned Atlanta to the ground during the Civil War. When the city was rebuilt after the war, it adopted the symbol of the phoenix to symbolize how it rose from the ashes. The Augusta National Golf Club hosts the Masters Tournament annually. 
previously known as the Augusta National Invitational, the event was created after the club was denied as a venue for the U.S. Open. The first tournament, in 1934, owed its success to co-founder Bobby Jones, who ended his four-year hiatus to play. Stone Mountain Park claims to house the largest piece of exposed granite in the world. Granite mined from the mountain was used for many notable projects, including the Georgia Capitol building. Live shrimp can be found at the top of Stone Mountain, 1,683 feet above sea level. Depressions in the stone gather rainwater that provides a habitat for the animals. And last but not least, Cumberland Island in Georgia is inhabited by wild horses. So even though this state isn't really tropical, it definitely has coastal areas and is worth checking out. Now let's move on to Donaldsonville, Georgia. Donaldsonville is a tiny hamlet in the southwestern corner of the state. It is named after John Ernest Donaldson, also known as Jonathan or John E. Donaldson, a prominent businessman of the area. The city has two schools, an elementary plus a middle and high school, and one pu public library. Two NFL players called it home at one time, and the two England brothers who escaped from Alcatraz in 1962 came from a Donaldsonville family. In all, it was an unlikely scene for what would become the second worst mass murder in Georgia history. And I am here today to tell you about the first. For most people, May 14th is a day like any other, but for the residents of Donaldsonville, Georgia, it's a terrifying slice of the town's history. On that day in 1973, a group of newly escaped prison inmates, brothers Carl and Billy Isaacs, their half-brother Wayne Coleman, and George Dungey, not related, committed the state's bloodiest massacre since 1887. The tale is something straight out of a horror film. On May 5th, 1973, the events which would culminate in the massacre of the Alday family began to form at the Poplar Hill Correctional Institute outside of Baltimore, Maryland. 19-year-old Carl Isaacs had been a truant and runaway that was diagnosed with depression, poor self-image, and an inability to handle his angry emotions, with particular hostility to women. He had prostituted himself out to a pedophile in exchange for room and board during one of his escapes from foster homes and the juvenile system in periods on the street. By 1970, when he was 16, he was regularly stealing cars and burglarizing homes, the same year he was arrested for the first time. A second arrest for car theft and breaking and entering in Maryland quickly followed, and he was sentenced to the Maryland State Penitentiary, arriving there on March 27, 1973. Two days later, a riot broke out, and the young and small Carl was raped by fellow inmates for over eight hours. Ten days later, he was transferred to the Maryland Correction Camp, and then on April 25th, he was transferred to the minimum security Poplar Hill. Carl's half-brother, Wayne Coleman, was 26 years old and had been in and out of institutions his entire life. Like Carl, he had been arrested for car theft and burglary and had already been at Poplar Hill for several months when Carl arrived. He did not crave control and admiration as Carl did, but was reportedly a shy and awkward follower. 
Carl sought him out as soon as he settled in at Poplar Hill, and with his fast talk and giant ego, easily swayed Coleman into the idea of an escape. Coleman only had one provision. He must be able to bring a friend with him. And that friend was George Dungy. Dungy was 36 years old, wore thick black-rimmed glasses, and appeared innocuous. He had been incarcerated at Poplar Hill on contempt of court citation for not paying child support. So, definitely not a violent guy. While at Poplar Hill, he had reportedly begun a homosexual relationship with Wayne Coleman. Despite the fact that he was soon to be released from Poplar Hill, Dungy, gullible and trusting, consented to go along with the escape scheme if only because Coleman wanted him to. For Carl Isaac's part, he had nothing but contempt for Dungy, as Dungy was a black man. At three in the morning of May 5th, the trio climbed through a bathroom window and hid in the surrounding woods. After several hours, they then made their way into Baltimore, where they stole a blue Thunderbird with the same ease in which they had left Poplar Hill. Authorities at Poplar Hill had, by that time, become aware that the three men had escaped, but as nothing in their criminal history indicated grave public danger, they did not alert authorities that the capture of the escapees was of the utmost importance. Isaacs, Coleman, and Dungy remained in Baltimore for two days following their escape, aimlessly enjoying their newfound freedom before Isaacs decided he wanted to pick up his 15-year-old brother, Billy. Billy was living in the Towson area of Baltimore County with a female friend, but did not hesitate to immediately join Carl as he idolized and worshipped his older brother. The now quartet spent the next nearly week driving around Maryland and into Pennsylvania, committing a multitude of home break-ins, scoring some cash, clothing, and guns. The plan, according to Carl, was to head south and live the good life full of drinking, drugs, and crime. Of course, if they had any hope of getting to Mexico or Florida, which was their ideal destinations, they would need money. And gas. On Thursday, May 10th, 1973, they were near McConnellsburg, Pennsylvania, stealing a pickup truck. 19-year-old Richard Wayne Miller, an upstanding young man who was a member of the Future Farmers of America, spotted the theft of his neighbor's vehicle and gave chase in his dark green 1968 Chevy Supersport. He then disappeared. By Monday, May 14th, the quartet, now in Richard Miller's car, arrived in Donaldsonville, the tiny county seat of Seminole County, Georgia. May 14, 1973, was a pleasant day in South Georgia, with temperatures that peaked at 73 degrees, 7 degrees below normal. Partly cloudy first thing in the morning, most of the clouds had burned off by 9 a.m., leaving the area just slightly overcast. The all-day family had started a routine day, with no idea that evil was heading straight for their farm. To Seminole County residents, the Aldays represented the decency and neighborliness that embodied Southern virtues. Ned and Ernestine Alday had eloped in 1935, eventually became parents to nine children, and had scrimped and saved until they could afford a small house in Donaldsonville before saving enough to purchase the farm with a large farmhouse on River Road. 
By 1973, the Aldays River Road property was a working farm with animals and crops. Ned and Ernestine lived in the big farmhouse with their youngest children, Faye and Jimmy. Their son, Jerry, who had married Mary Campbell in 1970, had moved into a trailer a few miles down River Road from the farmhouse. The Aldays were considered hard workers who put back-breaking, exhausting work into their farm and religious churchgoers. There had never been a police or court officer to enter the Alday home in an official capacity. No Alday had ever disturbed the peace, been on welfare, or been any type of blight to the community in any way. Ernestine Alday spent the morning of May 14th as she usually did, preparing the midday meal and doing household chores. At noon, the all-day men arrived for lunch, bowed their heads for the traditional blessing, and then talked about the farm as they ate. Ned and Jerry were plowing a field, although at a slower pace than usual due to muddy patches from recent rains. Jimmy planned to finish plowing a flat field he had started and then plow the fields behind Jerry's trailer after lunch, while Sugi would join his uncle Aubrey on equipment borrowed from a neighbor to work a field in the west. Their meal finished by 1 p.m., and they all left the house, leaving Ernestine behind to clean up. At roughly the same time, the Isaacs brothers, Coleman and Dungy, were driving in Seminole County after going so far as Jacksonville, Florida, and then turning around and heading north again. Carl Isaacs had noticed rural Seminole County on the way into Florida and felt the area with its remote locations and small police department would be perfect for what he had in mind. Despite their burglaries, the party was out of money, the majority of it being spent on beer, and soon to run out of gas. Carl hoped to find either new targets to rob or gas to siphon, or both. It was around 4 p.m. when he spotted a tank sitting alone in a field about 50 feet from the road. The tank, however, proved to be diesel, and so they agreed to continue on. Fifteen minutes later, spotting the gas pump on the all-day property, they knew they had found their next target. Carl Isaacs and Wayne Coleman began ransacking the trailer, while George Dungy and Billy Isaacs waited in the car. Seeing two men in a blue jeep approaching, Billy warned his brother Carl. Jerry Alday and his father Ned pulled in behind the trailer in Jerry's jeep, unaware that the home was being burgled. They typically would return to Jerry's home after a hard day of work to meet with the other men to plan the next day's farming while Mary would work in her flower garden in the front yard. Instead, they were met by Carl, who, at gunpoint, ordered them inside to sit at the kitchen table and to empty their pockets. From the father and son, the quartet scored a penknife, a cigarette lighter, a wallet, and some change. 35-year-old Jerry was taken to the south bedroom of the trailer, and 66-year-old Ned was taken to the north bedroom. Carl then shot and killed Jerry, and had to assist Coleman in killing Ned as, after having been shot once in the head, Ned Ned had risen from the bed he fell on to fight back. It had required multiple bullets from both Isaac's and Coleman's guns to restrain and permanently silence him. The later autopsies showed that Ned had been shot six times with two different pistols, a 22 caliber and a 32 caliber, and Jerry had been shot four times with a 22 caliber pistol. 
Shortly thereafter, Jimmy Alday, son of Ned and brother of Jerry, drove up on a green John Deere tractor, walked to the back door of the mobile home, and knocked politely. He was greeted by a pistol held by Coleman, who robbed him of a hat, a pair of sunglasses, and a nearly empty wallet. Carl confronted Jimmy, accusing him of coming to the trailer because he had heard the gunshots, to which Jimmy truthfully denied, but likely realized at the same moment that someone, probably his brother, had been shot. Carl took him to the living room, where Jimmy was forced to lie on the sofa. Carl then shot the 25-year-old twice in the back of the head. His autopsy later revealed that Jimmy had been shot twice with a 22 caliber caliber pistol. After murdering Jimmy, Carl went outside to move the tractor, which had been parked in front of their car. Jerry's wife, Mary, drove up in her car to the now crowded driveway. Seeing her, Carl jumped off the tractor and came up behind the unsuspecting Mary, who had pulled a paper bag of groceries from the car. Pulling a pistol on her, he ordered her into the trailer where his first act to demean her was to knock the bag of groceries from her hands. As she had been done to her husband, father-in-law, and brother-in-law, she was robbed of the possessions she had, including a Timex watch, when Carl dumped her handbag containing her car keys, perfume, and her wallet with one dollar inside out in front of her. That was when two men in a pickup truck pulled up, Sugi and Aubrey Alday the son and brother of Ned Alday. They were laughing and made no effort to get out of their vehicle, so Carl decided to go and get them. Taking his brother Billy with him, the two each took a truck door and ordered the men out and into the trailer at gunpoint, with Carl accusing the men of laughing at him. Sugi and Aubrey spotted Mary, crying uncontrollably, as they were ordered to sit on the kitchen floor Wayne Coleman collected towels from the kitchen table and headed to the north bedroom with Carl, and George Dungy took Mary to the bathroom, where Dungy was tasked with guarding her. Sugi, who had turned 30 years old exactly a week earlier, was taken by Coleman to the bloody north bedroom where his father lay dead. He was then shot. Aubrey, 57 years old, was taken by Carl to the south bedroom where Jerry's body lay and killed there. Their autopsies revealed that Aubrey had been shot once with a 38 caliber pistol and Sugi had been shot once with a 380 caliber pistol. When he was found, Aubrey's fingers lay folded over Jerry's, as if in the last moments of his life, he reached out to hold his nephew's hand. Mary was taken from the bathroom and to her kitchen table where she was raped, first by Carl and then by Coleman. The prison escapees, plus Billy Isaacs, and a blindfolded, gagged, and terrified Mary Alday, then drove to a heavily wooded area several miles away, where Mary was dragged out of the car by her hair and raped twice more by Carl and once more by George Dungy. Photographs were taken of her with an Instamatic camera stolen from the trailer. One photo was later found of a frightened and nude Mary only moments prior to her death. Before Dungy made her lie on her stomach and then shot Mary, 25 years old, once in the back and once near the back of her head. Her body was found after the all day's neighbors stumbled upon the crime scene. 
Her autopsy would reveal that not only had she been repeatedly raped, but she had been shot with a 22 caliber pistol. The killing quartet abandoned Richard Millard's car, nearly out of gas, in the woods close to where they left Mary's body, and instead took her car, a blue and white Chevy Impala, which they later abandoned in Alabama. The murders shocked and terrified the peaceful, close-knit community of Donaldsonville, but it also drew the already devoted community closer together. The Alday's neighbors, many of them ecking out a living as the Alday's had, stopped by the farmhouse on River Road to bring with them what they could, food and small sums of cash, and offer whatever help they could extend. In Colquitt, Georgia, the hometown of Mary Campbell Alday, and 18 miles from where her body had been found, her death had been agonizing for the community. The terrifying details of Mary's last hours of life were kept from her mother, who had been in declining health. Mrs. Campbell was told only that her daughter had been shot and died instantly from her wound. Unfortunately, a neighbor unintentionally revealed to Mrs. Campbell all the facts known about Mary's last moments, including that she had been the last to die after having witnessed at least two murders herself and that she had been found nude and probably raped. It was too much for Mrs. Campbell, who sank into a diabetic coma shortly after learning the details and died a few hours later. For many of the authorities, her death made her the seventh victim. The murdering trio, in their opinion, had put a gun to her head as much as they did the six Alde victims. On May 17, 1973, social and commercial activities came to a halt in Donaldsonville and Seminole County as the Alde funerals began. The mayor had called for a day of mourning and the community responded by closing all the stores downtown, leaving the streets deserted. By the time the funeral services began for Ned, Aubrey, Sugi, Jerry, Mary, and Jimmy, nearly all the townspeople, joined by hundreds of others from surrounding counties, had gathered at the Spring Creek Baptist Church, the church that Ned had helped to build, where the all-day men and Mary had been officers and teachers in its Sunday school, and where Sugi and Barbara Alday and Jerry and Mary Alday had married. As the church itself was not equipped to handle six full-sized coffins and the expected large number of people in attendance, the decision was made to have the services on the cemetery grounds to accommodate all who wanted to attend. So many floral arrangements were delivered that flowers were stacked on flowers around the coffins and the graves. Various state dignitaries attended, including the governor Jimmy Carter's mother, Lillian, and his special assistant. Eulogies were given for the victims. Ned was remembered for being lively and for his sense of humor. Aubrey, who left behind a wife and six children, was remembered for his skills as a farmer and his love of hunting and fishing. Sugi was remembered for his strength and comedic nature. Jerry was remembered for his quiet dignity. Mary was remembered for her work in social service and her devotion as a wife. Jimmy was remembered for his youthful energy and pranks and his love of looking facts up in the family encyclopedias. All of them were praised for their hard work and service to their church and community. George Dungy, the first of the killers captured, was taken into custody somewhat karmically on May 17th, the day of the all-day funerals. 
For over two hours, he told a disquieting tale of assault, rape, and murder. He confessed that he had been unable to sleep since, quote-unquote, what we had done to that woman, and that only Billy Isaacs was innocent of rape and murder. Ballistics showed, however, that the Aldays had been killed with four different types of guns, one of which Billy Isaacs had been carrying. Wayne Coleman's story differed somewhat from George Dungy's, as well as his demeanor, whereas Dungy told his story with a certain level of remorse and sorrow, Coleman appeared to have a good time recounting the sorrowful last moments of the Alday family. He boasted that he had personally killed every victim, proud of any level of cruelty and brutality, smiling as he told law enforcement of the tragic end of six lives. Also unlike Dungy, who had a clearer remembrance of details and timing, Coleman was fuzzy. So much so that he asked officers if Alabama was part of Georgia and if Louisiana was a county in Mississippi. Billy Isaac's account was very similar to that of George Dungy, insofar as which all-day family members arrived at the trailer and when and in which order they were killed. He claimed that he had not murdered anyone. Only Carl Isaacs of the four refused to say anything about May 14, 1973, other than it was a pretty May day. The four escaped inmates were returned to Seminole County on May 25th, just 10 days after the murders, to be arraigned at the courthouse in Donaldsonville. They each faced six counts of murder, as well as the felony charges of rape, kidnapping, armed robbery, and the theft of Mary Alday's car. Whereas the community had been shocked and saddened by the murders, they were now outraged and demanding that if the defendants were indeed guilty, justice be served. Fryam was often heard, and it was alleged there were suggestions to form a lynch mob and execute a swift form of street justice. The four defendants being placed in four separate jails, miles apart, only seemed to bolster the rumors. With the Isaacs brothers, Coleman and Dungy under arrest, the long wait for the family of Richard Miller, the missing Pennsylvania teen, was finally about to come to an end. With the discovery of his car at the Mary Alday body site and eyewitnesses in Pennsylvania who gave accounts of the men that Richard was chasing, authorities suspected that the boy was likely dead but wanted to locate his body to return to his family. Following several hours of negotiation in which he was assured that nothing he said or did could be used against him, Wayne Coleman agreed to return to Pennsylvania to aid in recovering Richard's body. Shortly after his arraignment on May 24th, he was taken by plane to Maryland, where he laughingly told authorities that he had pulled the trigger himself. Quote, I didn't want the others to have all the fun, unquote. For three days, he led heavily armed officers in circling routes around the Pennsylvania-Maryland border, eventually convincing them that while he knew plenty about the homicide, he had no geographical sense. Coleman was then returned to Georgia. With Coleman's failure at locating Richard Miller's body, authorities were surprised to find Carl Isaacs willing to aid. Like Coleman, he was transported to Pennsylvania and also like Coleman, he was utterly devoid of any sign of remorse. But unlike Coleman, Isaacs had a nearly photographic memory of landmarks and where they had traveled. 
He easily directed the police on the exact route they had taken, from when Richard Miller had taken pursuit to when they had kidnapped him. The group was taken to the small town of Flintstone, Maryland, where Isaacs gave the police detailed instructions on where to find Richard's body. The unrepentant killer did not want to accompany them on their grim discovery. The body of Richard Wayne Miller was found exactly where Carl Isaacs had said it would be, up a logging road and to the left of a debris-strewn trash dump. His killers had tied his hands behind his back, forced him to his knees, and then argued over who would be the one to kill him, over his pleas to spare his life. He was then shot in the back of the head, his body left among the trash. Isaacs was flippant about the death of the young boy. From the moment Richard Miller had approached them, he said, he was a dead man. Before the first trial started, that of Carl Isaacs, Billy Isaacs made a deal with prosecutors, who felt that Billy, being illegible for the death penalty due to his age and less culpable than the other defendants, was the best eyewitness. Rather than going to trial, Billy would be sentenced to two 20-year terms for burglary and car theft, the maximum sentence he could receive, and would testify against the three defendants. The State of Georgia versus Carl Isaacs commenced at 9.30 in the morning on December 31, 1974, before Judge Walter Gere with Voir Dyer. Voir Dyer is an Anglo-Norman phrase meaning speak the truth. It refers to an oath taken by jurors to tell the truth, to say what is true, what is objectively accurate or subjectively honest, or both. Special Prosecutor Peter Gear, the nephew of Judge Walter Gear, had known Ned all day, as well as other family members. He had fished with them and been a guest in their homes. He was more than eager to prosecute the men accused of killing them and to institute Georgia's then new capital punishment statute. He managed to seat a jury on that first day, following a relatively speedy voir dire, and began the presentation of his case on New Year's Day at 9 a.m. He proved to be as speedy with his presentation as he was in voir dire, as he called Bud all day to be rapidly followed by the sheriff, eyewitnesses to the defendants being in the vicinity of the Alday property on May 14, 1973, to one of Mary Alday's co-workers, who identified her Timex watch that was found in the possession of the defendants, and Sugi Alday's wife Barbara, who identified a briefcase belonging to her husband containing his driver's license, fishing license, and a dental appointment card that were found in the defendant's possession. Continuing on to police officers, crime lab technicians, and the doctor who performed the autopsies before he arrived at his 11th witness. That was his star witness. The one the anxious courtroom was waiting to hear. The now 16-year-old Billy Isaacs. Billy took the stand on the afternoon of January 4th only feet away from four of the surviving all-day children and his brother Carl, who glared up at him from the defense table. Over the next two hours, he recounted meeting up with Carl, Coleman, and Dungy, following their escape and their tortuous path to River Road. 
He spoke, as George Dungy had, of the Alday's last painful moments of life, of the prolonged torture inflicted on Mary Alday, and the death and destruction wreaked in the small trailer of Jerry and Mary Alday. Particularly painful to the Alday family in attendance, and to those who had known and cared for the Alday victims, was Billy's testimony that Carl Isaacs, after robbing him, had asked Jerry Alday if he were married, to which Jerry had responded truthfully, but had told Isaacs that there was no need to wait for his wife, as she never had more than a dollar or two with her. Upon seeing a look in Carl's eye, did Jerry realize he had made a grave mistake and begged Isaacs not to hurt her. According to Billy, the reason the four didn't depart the trailer immediately after killing Ned and Jerry all day was solely to wait for Mary, whom Carl Isaacs, in addition to raping, had also hit multiple times, once hard enough to cause her to lose consciousness. Billy also testified that when Carl had gone to kill Aubrey all day, as Wayne Coleman was killing Sugi all day, his gun had only clicked. Carl had shot it so many times that it ran out of bullets. He had run to Billy, grabbed his pistol, and then gone back into the bedroom, after which Billy testified he heard one or two shots. Carl, Billy said, was laughing when he came out of the bedroom, saying that, quote, that damn bastard begged for mercy, unquote. Both the prosecution and the defense made their closing arguments on January 5th, and the case then went to the jury. 68 minutes later, the jury reached its verdict, finding Carl Isaacs guilty on all counts. The penalty phase of Carl's trial began on January 7th, with Peter Gear stressing that it was the jury's duty to protect the citizens of Seminole County from the likes of Carl Isaacs, and the only way to be absolutely certain that he could never commit such a crime again was to impose death upon him. Carl yawned and appeared bored by the entire proceeding, 38 minutes after Isaac's lawyer gave a plea for his client's life. The jury voted for death. The trial against George Dungy began nine days later and followed the same format as that of Carl Isaacs. 58 minutes after the jury got the case, they returned with their verdict of guilty on all counts. Although Dungy's attorney offered an eloquent plea for his client's life and against the death penalty in general, the jury deliberated less than two hours before voting for death. Gen Dungy reportedly received his sentence without emotion. Wayne Coleman's trial was the last, but like the two previous, it was a three-day affair that ended with a guilty verdict on all counts after a jury deliberation of 50 minutes. Coleman, who had wrung his hands nervously and fidgeted during his trial, was sentenced to death 50 minutes after his attorney pleaded for his life. After Judge Gere pronounced his sentence, he smiled broadly and said, Thanks, Judge, before being led away. Although the trials and convictions were quick, carrying out the sentences themselves wouldn't be, because we know our justice system is the slowest ever. Judge Gere had set the execution dates initially as February 15, 1974. Seeing that as the all days had died together, so should their killers. But it was a mere formality as mandatory and automatic appeals were made to the Georgia Supreme Court. 
Over the next decade, multitudes of appeals and filings were made by the three defendants, with new execution dates set and then postponed due to those filings. All appeals and motions were denied, until a discovery motion in 1979 was granted, putting into gear what would lead to retrials in 1988. In 1975, Billy Isaacs, being the only one of the four defendants not under a death sentence, was returned to Maryland to stand trial for the kidnap and murder of Richard Wayne Miller, being charged as an accomplice. He was found guilty and sentenced to 60 years, which would run concurrent to his 40-year sentence in Georgia, meaning he could potentially serve 50 years before being eligible for parole. In the spring of 1974, Carl Isaacs agreed to an interview with the writer from the Albany Herald, sparking off multiple interviews and a passion by Isaacs for fame. He claimed, among other things, that on the first anniversary of the all-day murders, he would send a note to Wayne Coleman, whose own death row cell was down the hall, a note wishing him a happy anniversary. His life's ambition, he said, was to murder a thousand people, his backup place was even more laughable, to be a practicing attorney. He did concede, in possibly the most wildly understated remark in history, that the bar would never accept him. He threatened his younger brother, Billy, saying that he would, quote, never live to hit the streets again, unquote. And if both of them were free, Billy would be the first person he would kill. He claimed not to think about the Alday murders themselves, but in the same breath, gave a respect of sorts to Mary Alday for being the only one who put up a fight, as the rest just lay down and got shot. He admitted he'd like to get out and, quote, kill more of the Aldays, unquote, as they represented the type of society he didn't like, church-going folks, humble and hard workers. For all the vitriol he had for the Aldays, even going so far as to claim that nobody gave a damn about them until he killed them. The, quote, only thing the Aldays ever did that stood out was getting killed by me, unquote. And they were, quote, unquote, just farmers. He had a great deal of sympathy for himself, however. He found prison an affront to his humanity. Being locked up, it prevented him from being out in the world, doing something to ease the hate he had within him. He said prison was full of peril for him, and two groups within the prison wanted him dead, one of whom had allegedly put a $5,000 bounty on his head. So deep was his self-pity and utter lack of self-awareness that he believed the surviving all-day family should feel sorry for him, as he was on death row. Prisons, he felt, shouldn't make people suffer so much before they were put to death, and the public should have more compassion. Maybe surprisingly, maybe not, Isaac's own mother called for his own execution, stating that she didn't want her sons, Isaac's and Wayne Coleman, around if they weren't going to be killing people. And honestly, as a mother, I would have said the same thing. On the morning of July 28, 1980, four inmates on Georgia State Prison's death row escaped simply walking out of the prison during the early morning shift change. While three were caught by July 30th and the fourth was discovered murdered, it came out that the mastermind behind the escape was none other than Carl Isaacs. 
Isaacs had been planning such an escape since 1974, had gotten a guard involved in helping, had arranged for five men to be transferred to his cell block to more easily facilitate the escape. The fifth man got cold feet at the last minute and had not participated in the actual escape only as he had been transferred from Reedsville to the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification Center in Jackson a few hours before the men broke free. Isaac's only message to the three escapees who were returned to Reedsville was that he would, quote, like to kick their asses for being out that long and not getting a piece of wasting somebody, unquote. In 1983, two books and one movie about the Alday murders were released. In the film, it was the character of Billy who provided narration and was the main voice. It was a wholly sympathetic portrayal of him, erroneously showing him as an innocent boy who had never gotten into trouble prior to the murders. The film also takes creative license with how the defendants were eventually caught, choosing to have Billy's character pull a gun on Carl to prevent him from taking a young girl hostage, rather than surrendering under threat of gunfire by police. The movie is Murder One. Although I have not watched it and do not recommend it since it does not seem to be an accurate portrayal of events. Looks like Billy is just trying to save face. On November 26, 1985, a guard at the Georgia Classification and Diagnostic Center in Jackson, Georgia, discovered the entire front portion of a ventilation system in Carl Isaac's cell had been cut through. So close had Isaacs been to a potential escape that layer after layer of screens, louvers, and metal backings had been penetrated through to the plumbing chase behind the cell, leaving only a single set of thin steel bars in the skylight above the chase. Isaac's planned escape with three other inmates had been due to take place only hours later. Then, on December 9, 1985, a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit of the United States Court of Appeals concluded that due to the inflammatory and prejudicial pre-trial publicity, Isaacs, Coleman, and Dungy could not have received fair trials, that each of the defendants should have been granted a change of venue, and the error in not doing so was an unconstitutional judicial one. Thus, the convictions and death sentences of Carl Isaacs, Wayne Coleman, and George Dungy were set aside, despite the overwhelming evidence of their guilt. All three were granted new trials. On August 18, 1986, Isaacs, Coleman, and Dungy were transferred from death row to the Chatham County Jail in Savannah to wait new trials. Only a few days later, Judge Walter C. McMillan Jr. of Sandersville was appointed to preside over all three trials. On August 30th, he appointed six new lawyers to defend Isaacs, Coleman, and Dungy. Lawyers for Coleman and Dungy filed a motion challenging McMillan, charging that he was prejudiced against both poor and black defendants. Despite the motion being denied after a hearing, the defense lawyers appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court, adding an additional seven-month delay to the entire process. In November, following an alleged nine-day hunger strike, Carl Isaacs filed suit against Chatham County for inhumane treatment. He alleged he had suffered while in its custody. On March 12, 1987, he filed another suit charging that he had been illegally transported from Chatham County, making subsequent movements across the state illegal. 
Arguments were heard on April 2nd and dismissed a few days later. My question is, how is he affording all of this? Or if it's pro bono work, why are these lawyers trying to help him? Anyway, the first week of May 1987, the Georgia Supreme Court at last ruled judgment on the matter of Judge McMillan and disqualified him. It would take nearly a two-month search to replace him, this time with Judge Hugh Lawson Jr. of the Oconee Judicial Circuit. On August 13th, Judge Lawson selected Perry, Georgia, a small town in Houston County, to be the site of the retrials. The first case would be that of Carl Isaacs. Jury selection began in the first days of January 1988, nearly 14 years to the day of Isaac's first trial. It would prove to be an almost duplicate of the first trial, with the notable exception of Ernestine Alday deciding to testify. Billy Isaacs, now in his 30s and alone out of the four defendants to have been charged and convicted with the kidnap and murder of Richard Wayne Miller, was disappointed and dismayed that it was entirely possible that Carl Isaacs, Wayne Coleman, and George Dungey could walk on the all-day murders, while he was facing serving 50 years before being eligible for parole. He was hesitant over testifying against them yet again until prosecutor Charles Ferguson showed him a photograph of Ernestine, the woman who had lost her husband, brother-in-law, three sons, and a daughter-in-law back in 1973. Ernestine had never spoken out in vengeance against Billy Isaacs, nor called for the death penalty for him. And upon seeing her picture and hearing that, Billy agreed to testify. Unlike the first trial, which had moved along with unbelievably rapidity, this second trial did not start until nine volumes of defense motions and voir dire examination had been completed. It was January 3rd, 1988, before Ferguson stood before the court to begin his case. Worried that the presence of the crying all-day family members in the courtroom might prejudice their clients' rights, Carl Isaac's attorneys made a motion for a mistrial, and once it was denied, requested that the court order the spectators to be quiet or be removed. Judge Lawson acted in an abundance of caution and so issued the warning that sorry, excuse me, that displays of emotion would not be tolerated and that anyone who could not control their emotions would need to leave the courtroom until they could resume control. This stung for the Aldays, who noted that while they were taken to task for crying, the Isaacs family was free not only to cry in the courtroom, but on the stand as well. Ernestine Alday, the matron of the devastated family, managed to hold her composure while on the stand until shown a picture of the trailer taken the day after the murders. When she saw her late husband's pipe in the ashtray on the kitchen table, she wept. It was nearly 1.30 in the afternoon of January 23, 1988, when Billy Isaacs took the stand. He repeated the events of May 14, 1973, without a single substantive alteration in detail from what he had testified to 14 years earlier. His brother's attorneys attempted to shake him, but did not succeed. The state called a writer-filmmaker by the name of Fleming Fuller to the stand. Fuller had interviewed Carl Isaacs in Reedsville in 1976, and Isaacs agreed to tell his story on film. 
In a world of the weirdly ironic, Carl Isaacs became a witness against himself during his second trial. He was shown on camera, his voice emotionless and monotone, as he recounted the all-day murders. Besides getting the sequence of the shootings incorrect, he mentioned that while leaving Aubrey all day in the bedroom to take Billy's gun from him, Aubrey had managed to get a hold of a 12-gauge shotgun that had been that had been standing in the corner, and only by sheer bad luck for Aubrey had Carl managed to shoot him first. He also blamed Mary Alday for her own death by claiming that he had told her if she gave them no hassle, it would save her life. Isaac's attorneys called no witnesses on their client's behalf. And on January 25th, 1988, at 6.45 p.m., after deliberating for just over two hours, the jury reached a verdict. They found Carl Isaacs guilty on all six counts of murder. The penalty phase in Carl Isaacs' trial began on January 25th. Ferguson argued for the death penalty, citing not only the heinous nature of the crimes, but Isaacs' two near, nearly successful escapes from prison and his boastful accounts of them. Ferguson also brought up Isaac's evil nature, calling to the stand as a witness a WSB-TV reporter who had interviewed Isaac several years ago after the murders. The reporter recalled that he had asked Isaacs if he had to do it all over again. Would he have committed the murders? And Isaacs had replied that he would. Isaac's attorneys called one witness on their client's behalf, a woman whom he had been corresponding with since 1974. She testified that Isaacs addressed her as mom, that they talked about the Bible and participated in Bible study courses together. According to her, in 1979, Isaacs had been baptized in her church and later graduated from the Baptist Christian College in Louisiana, where he had taken correspondence courses and received a Master of Bible Theology from the International Bible Institute. She was convinced that Carl Isaacs was the kind of person who could reach out and help anyone. In his closing, Isaacs' attorney claimed that the rape of Mary Alday had not really been a rape at all, but rather Carl Isaacs' way assaulting his own mother, for whom he had a virulent hatred. The jury deliberated for one hour and 52 minutes before finding that Carl Isaacs should be put to death. Wayne Coleman's retrial took place in Decatur, Georgia, outside of Atlanta in April. Coleman was only 41, but he had lost all his teeth, his hair was nearly white, and his body haggard and emaciated. His attorney blamed Carl Isaacs, one of the most manipulative persons you will ever meet, and Billy Isaacs, whom he described as exactly like Carl, a killer, a manipulator, who cut a deal with the state. He also called two clinical psychologists to the stand, one to testify to Carl Isaac's psychological makeup and one to testify as to Coleman's. Prosecutor Ferguson once again presented much of the same case that had been presented back in 1974, relying upon the physical evidence and Billy Isaac's eyewitness testimony to prove Coleman's guilt. On April 29th, the case went to the jury who enjoyed a hamburger dinner before finding Wayne Coleman guilty of six counts of murder. As with Carl Isaacs, the penalty phase for Wayne Coleman began the next day. Unlike Isaacs, Coleman's attorneys put the clinical psychologist who had interviewed and administered tests to Coleman on the stand. 
The doctor testified to Coleman's passive, follower-type personality, his overall depression as a human being, and his character being ripe for picking by someone like Carl Isaacs. He also claimed that Wayne Coleman not only felt guilty over the murders, but that he had prayed to God for forgiveness. Coleman's attorneys had also gotten his mother, and also Carl Isaac's mother, to relent and testify on Coleman's behalf. She testified that as a boy, Coleman was good, worked on farms, and had never gotten into any kind of trouble. She said that while she believed Carl and Billy, her other two sons, could pull the trigger of a gun and kill somebody, Wayne could not. This viewpoint was confirmed by Coleman's sister, Ruth, who followed her mother to the stand. Ruth burst into tears when she admitted she loved Wayne, and despite the court's admonition during Carl Isaac's trial that emotional outbursts would not be allowed, no step was taken to get Ruth Isaacs under control. Unlike the penalty decision in Carl Isaac's case, this one was not quick in coming. From the moment the jury retired to deliberate, there was a stalemate. One juror, a 22-year-old woman, had stated flatly that she would not vote for the death sentence. Despite her apparent inflexibility, deliberations had continued, complete with bursts of arguments, screams, and crying for the next six days. At 10.20 a.m. on May 11th, following a reported 35-hour straight deliberation, the jury foreman sent word to the judge that there was a deadlock and the jurors were unable to agree on a sentence. Judge Lawson was forced to declare a mistrial under Georgia law, which meant that Wayne Coleman would receive a life sentence and be eligible for parole in 15 years. Satisfied that the jury spared his life, Coleman opted not to appeal. George Dungy had been the next and last in line for a retrial, but in 1988, the Georgia General Assembly had decreed that mentally retarded individuals could not be executed in Georgia. Dungy, who had repeatedly been given IQ tests and had never scored higher than 68, met the requirements as the state judged people whose IQs were lower than 70 to be mentally retarded. And so on July 14, 1988, George Dungy pleaded guilty by reason of mental retardation to six counts of murder and was sentenced to six consecutive life terms. The years continued to roll by while Coleman and Dungy served their sentences and Carl Isaacs continued to appeal his death sentence, the appeals of which were basically reset on his reconviction. For the Alday family, the years brought new tragedies. With the deaths of the five Alday men, all farmers, the family business, simply could not be sustained. Following their murders in 1973, neighbors in Donaldsonville pitched in to help tend the crops and bring them in, but it wasn't feasible to continue through that first year, and the farming equipment was eventually sold off. Worse, prior to his death, Ned Alday, advancing in his years, had deeded his property to three of his sons, Jerry, Sugi, and Jimmy. He knew they would never take advantage of him and felt it was the safest way to protect the land should anything happen to him. None of them could have guessed that the Isaacs Coleman brothers and George Dungy would destroy their family. With Ned's death, the property passed to Jerry, Sugi, and Jimmy, all of whom died shortly after he did. As Mary officially outlived them, she inherited the entire lot, save for a small acreage that went to Sugi's wife, Barbara. 
With her death, it meant her heirs inherited the Alday land, the 500-plus acres that the Aldays had sweated and toiled over for many decades that Ernestine Alday had lived on for over 40 years was no longer hers. The land was eventually sold off in plots, with Ernestine keeping a small parcel of land where she built a modest home for herself. With each book and movie, none of which any Alday family member received a penny, and with each new legal action and maneuver made by one of the killers, the Aldays were forced to relive that terrible day in May 1973. In 1993, Billy Isaacs was released from prison following a 1991 agreement that he be paroled. He had served 20 years. In October of 1998, Ernestine Alday died. She was buried alongside her husband and children in the Spring Creek Baptist Church Cemetery. Less than a year later, in September of 1999, her sole surviving son and oldest child, Norman, who had been serving in the military at the time of the murders and who had risen to the rank of Command Sergeant Major in the Army, died in Colorado at the age of 63. On May 6, 2003, 30 years and one day after escaping from prison in Maryland, Carl Isaac's time finally ran out. Requesting a regular institution tray for his final meal, pork and macaroni, pinto beans, cabbage, carrot salad, dinner roll, chocolate cake, and fruit punch, although neglecting to touch it, he was given a lethal injection and pronounced dead at 8.07 p.m. No one from the Isaacs family was present at his execution. He was supported by his attorney and two ministers who witnessed the execution. Isaacs denied making a final statement, but did request a final prayer, to which he reportedly mouthed, Amen. Members of the surviving Alday family were present for the execution, marking the first time in Georgia that members of a victim's family were permitted to watch an execution. Isaacs became the second condemned inmate to be put to death in Georgia in 2003 and the 32nd in the U.S. that year. He holds the dubious record of being on death row longer than any other inmate in the United States. In the years since Carl Isaacs' execution, he has been connected with the January 1973 shotgun murder of 58-year-old Ann Elder of York County, Pennsylvania. Miss Elder, who had met Isaacs in November of 1972, was killed during a period that Isaacs had escaped from a detention facility. In 2003, Paige McKean, the granddaughter of Ned and Ernestine Alday, and the niece of Jerry, Mary, Jimmy, and Sugi Alday, was instrumental in passing the Alday Family Bill, which makes it mandatory for state officials to contact the families of victims in death penalty cases twice a year. Prior to the passing of the bill, it was difficult for crime victims to gain information about any developments in their cases. She shares the all-day story to spread awareness for victims of crimes. In 2015, she spoke directly with Wayne Coleman about the murders of her family members. On April 4, 2006, George Dungy died of a heart attack in the prison in Reedsville, Georgia. He was 68 years old. On May 4, 2009, Almost 36 years to the day that his brothers escaped from prison, Billy Isaacs died in Florida where he had relocated. He was 51 years old. 
Wayne Coleman continues to serve his sentence at the Georgia State Prison in Reedsville. Although eligible for parole, he has been denied. He is 75 years old. The murder of the Alday family shocked and horrified the local community. The sheriff of Seminole County, where the crime took place, emphatically stated, quote, If I had my way about it, I'd have me a large oven and I'd pre-cook them for several days, unquote. Even then, Governor Jimmy Carter, future president of the United States, called the all-day family murders the most heinous crime in Georgia. As it turns out, two witnesses had seen Carl, Wayne, and George after they left Poplar Hill in 1973. One was Norman Strait, who had spotted the trio while traveling down the interstate. To get a better view, Strait had peered through the scope of his hunting rifle, watching as they loaded various things into their stolen Thunderbird. Of the incident, Strait had said, quote, I guess I should have shot that son of a bitch right there. It would have saved a lot of lives. End quote. Six lives, to be exact. Ned, Jimmy, Jerry, Mary, Chest, Sugi, and Aubrey Thanks Alday. for listening to Coastal Crimes. Check out my website and blog at coastalcrimespod.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Coastal Crimes Pod. If you have questions or recommendations to share, email me at coastalcrimespod at gmail.com. Episodes are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, please visit my Patreon page to keep this show going.